0: Welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts Wella and Obehi Alifoje. Let's get this rebellion started. There is so much talk about employee well-being, about mental health, about workplace culture, and it seems that everybody has jumped on the bandwagon of it's okay not to be okay. Right? Yeah. Why? Why is focusing on your employees' welfare, why is it something that organizations have to do in 2023? Well, I like to think, I want to start by saying that I think that the industry, a lot of companies
1: in industries have done a lot in the past couple of years, three years actually since the pandemic, to be able to move mental health, mental wellbeing, employee wellbeing agenda forward. They're investing in it. it they've got this they've the strategies, initiative, all of that stuff. The TIPD will say that I've done eighty-two percent of companies, or eighty-seven actually, of companies have a well being initiative in place. However, only 55 of those have a defined well-being strategy. And actually, from the work that we've been doing with a lot of organisations, that 55 is a little bit too high. It, 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 the strategy that they put in place is not what they really think it is, but that's a different story for another day. What we want to talk about is why it's still important that they carry on this work beyond 2023, 2024, 2025, because we are still in a post-pandemic work workplace, workforce, whatever you want to call it. The rise of the mental health issue from the pandemic has not ended because we're out and about them. That mm-hmm. hasn't changed particularly, and that's because the resources that we used to have, well, to be fair, we barely had the resources for mental health in the first place, but we were hiding the things. There was still a lot of stigma, so therefore, who cared whether or not there was enough services to be able to cover people who were ill? But now that it's okay to not be okay, well, I don't think the services were ready for people to decide that it would okay, it could not be okay within the year. Therefore, the pressure in the NHS, particularly, to be able to offer support to people who have common mental health issues like anxiety and depression. And so all of a sudden, that put the pressure on the NHS for us, but it also put pressure on the organizations themselves who now find themselves having to look after employee mental health when that was not part of the deal in the first place.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much of my story you you as uh, listeners have known and anybody who knows who I am will know that I myself struggled with work-related uh, mental health issues. And this was pre-pandemic, before mental health was sexy, before employee well-being was a thing. So I know that I got access to support from the NHS pretty quickly through my GP. I was able to get at least an appointment face-to-face pre-COVID. I was able to, to, to get s- several um, appointments throughout the period of time I was off sick, get the right level of medication. But even pre-pandemic, I didn't have access to CBT or anything like that. I actually had to pay privately for my own therapy, because it was uh, something that I needed to do. I didn't have private healthcare at the time.
1: I'm minute. why didn't they refer you to CBT? Uh,
0: I don't know. I don't know. To be honest, I don't know. And so, it, oh,
1: wait, hang on. Can I remember you? You did have a conversation with a GP. You got
0: given antidepressants. Yeah, like that. yeah.
1: Um, antidepressant. Uh, then what? Where, where were the talking therapy going to come from?
0: And I think if I as lucidly as I can recall (laughs) that time, I think that I was offered therapy and I said I didn't want it. I had my own private therapist. Okay. So I think that's it. But now I know that the wait times for that kind of support on the NHS are much higher because if you tell people it's okay not to be okay, and so they start opening up but you haven't increased the n- number of people who are there to listen to them, you're going to end up with a wait list. It's common yeah, sense. Yeah, And that's why it's now something that companies who never cared about your personal life, particularly before, it wasn't their responsibility. That is why now you have to focus on this stuff. Yeah. I, and I, I, I wouldn't disagree. I don't think, it was never their
1: responsibility. It was always their responsibility to look after your physical health, right? They, mm-hmm. that's why the ergonomic share the hydrogen ergonomic. Uh, ergonomic <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, and the whole thing, the standing table. I remember when I had more back pain at work where it was almost like, Oh, Obi, you have to fill out like this wrong <laughs> to make sure you got the right share and everything else. And that was brilliant, you know, sure. That means it suggested that they were always supposed to look after me, my health. Mm -hmm. But mental health was stigmatized, so that wasn't part of what anybody would say they needed help around, although they had EAPs. If you have any mental health issue, go and use your EAP. So I still think that they were always meant to. Organizations were already meant to look after you as an employee, your physical health and mental health, simply because if you're not at your optimum your productivity would drop anyway and it was not their best interest to make sure their productivity didn't drop because that would affect the bottom line. So that was always their responsibility. Um, and I, that, that's just my thought process about it now. Now, moving forward, 2023, we're all on the same page. That is your employees, employer's business or businesses. It is now your responsibility to make sure that your employees are safe physically and mentally and psychologically. The difference here is that you can't ignore it anymore because the NHS cannot help you ignore it, Mm -hmm. like saying, hey, we've got to look after all these patients, 1.4 million of them, not going to happen. So you're going to have people who should be in treatment, not in treatment, and depending on where you live, 35 weeks wait in some cases, others much less than that, of course. Then people like you who got private uh, counselling, good for you. But not everybody has that kind of opportunity. Yeah. So you have people waking. And what happens when people are waiting for treatment? They get sicker. They rarely get better. If they do get better, it's because the situation has changed. So either the new baby that it had, have, you know, started sleeping through the night. So that situation has changed. Um, or a divorce had gone through. <laughs> you know, something has changed the situation that the person had to adjust. But in a lot of cases, something dragged on for months and months and months, which means this person is unable to perform to the ability that they used to, in you know previously that ha- that used to happen. So again, we're talking about NHS. It, it, it is what it is, but it had affected the the level of responsibility that an organization would have to give to the employee, especially in the UK.
0: Yeah. So I guess it's an employee's responsibility to kind of bridge the gap between what is publicly available and what is actually required. Because if we say to people, um, have you you considered going to your GP to discuss this? And they go, and then they're told they've got to wait 35 weeks or 36 weeks for treatment. What are we expecting them to do in the meantime? So that's why we specialize in helping employers know how to bridge that gap. First of all, recognizing that there's a need. And then how do you fill that need? So the kind of stuff that that is missing is if we've told people it's okay to open up and they should bring their whole selves to work, who are they bringing it to and what are they doing with that? That's why workplace well-being is a whole strategy. It can't just be uh, well-being days. It can't just be, I don't, we, we make jokes about this all the time, but it can't just be yoga at lunchtime. and pool go tables, tables. <laughs> in the in the break room it's got to be about upskilling people and about my favorite phrase normalizing the mental health conversation in the workplace right so that generally people and specifically managers know how to talk to each other about all the stuff that we go through yeah. in life whether it's got anything to do with work or not Absolutely anything to do with work or not. It doesn't matter. Because if you say bring your whole self to work, that means bring your home life to work, bring your social life to work, bring the happy you to work, bring the sad you to work, not just the professional you, Mm. but the personal you. So, how do I help you to get the support that you need so that you can be that best version of yourself? We've just assumed managers know how to do it. That's the biggest issue that I have seen. And the problem then lands on, on typically HR's door, doesn't it? To resolve because it either then becomes a disciplinary issue or a performance management issue, but the process should be really simple, right? Right. To me, it should be really, really simple. A person struggling with my mental health, Uh, it's something that's new or a chronic situation that's now flared. I am struggling at work. I tell someone or somebody notices and then I get support. I get support from my manager in a way that suits me, is comfortable for me to access. And then I'm given the, the tools, the space, whatever I need to get better and I get better, right? That doesn't happen often enough. No, <laughs> no, it, it really doesn't. Because, it, again, it's like we
1: said earlier, that the honest is still on the person who's not well to risk um, the shame, risk the stigma, to risk them losing their job or having the promotion compromised to be able to say they have a problem, so they don't. And like I said, again, I'm going to repeat that. Three years ago, four years ago, if this happened to you, you might quietly use your EAP, get support and be done with it, or not. A lot of employees would tell me that they're not sure if the EAP is actually um, confidential or that stuff. It really is. It really is. But I think, again, it's a communication to people to let them know that it really is. But back to my original point is that those people will go to the GP and they'll get help from the NHS as you do. You, you either get medication and you get put on a wait list for CBT, but it needs to be a few weeks and you get it. That part has changed. So they cannot now do it on the down low. <laughs> they can't go secretly to the GP, sort themselves out. You might look at are slightly off for three weeks, but after a month or two, they seem okay and better because they're now receiving treatment. That part has been taken out of the equation. So now you have someone whose EAP is probably not as Optimize could probably have only three sessions or whatever the number it is. or they're saying is now telephone and you no, know, don't get any other support. So it depends on the quality of the EAP you have. But that's one point. The second point is now that that GP can offer antidepressants, anti anti-indiety tablets, whatever it is, but it's never usually enough on its own. You need some sort of talking therapy or the other to be able to, to, to come by. just like how you did in Gazi. So that part is no longer there which means that down people are left to deal with this stuff. And to be fair, one of the, the just one of the stats actually from last year's global wellbeing survey was four out of five of the top five physical wellbeing risks to a company's performance are now mental health related. What I mean by that is the four are now stress at sixty-seven percent, burnout at forty-six percent, anxiety at thirty-seven percent, depression at thirty-two percent. And then the final one before you get to physical um, issues like back pain, for example. So which means it's now top heavy. So mental health is now top heavy. Which still means it's still a lot of um, people, 42%, one in four in some cases, who are struggling. And we don't know the extent, how severe their mental health is until it presents itself in some way, whether someone is now sick for six months or a year. Or somebody has attempted suicide in a lot of cases, or someone has actually completed suicide in some cases. Mm. So this is what I wanted to. Yeah,
0: that yeah. that that just reminds me because I think we paint we paint such a in a way clinically clean, dry picture of mental health, right? When we talk about oh, this person's got stress or anxiety and depression. I wanna I wanna make it clear what that looks like to you in the workplace it it looks like a person who well it's like me i i may have appeared outwardly confident and bubbly and bright but i was crumbling on the inside and the way that that showed was lack of certainty so i wasn't i wasn't as confident in taking risks at work And Why does that matter? It matters because you can't break new ground. You cannot be um, innovative and creative unless you take risks, unless you're willing to take risks. But I wasn't, so I played it safe. I um, wasn't able to, uh, I don't know, express myself, feel comfortable so I couldn't do the things that I now am able to do, which is demonstrate that kind of leadership. I couldn't do as much of that when I was really, really nervous, when I was anxious and concerned about um, how people perceived me and was it, did they know what I was thinking on the inside. It really does affect the kind of employee that you are. Um, and, and that's an important thing. The other thing I wanted to to say is that, I mean, this stuff is messy. We've had uh, uh, worked with a big global brand that um, really first-hand experienced what this means. So this company had someone on site attempting to commit suicide as a direct result of workplace bullying, and harassment and extortion. Now, luckily, they weren't successful. They tried twice. Yeah, they did. And the impact on the team when the police come in, Mm -hmm. saying we're looking for the person, we believe they've attempted to kill themselves, we want to check they're not on the premises. Can you imagine what that's like for a team? What about the impact on the manager who was the one who was managing the bully and the their victim and didn't do enough to intervene and stop it from happening. Can you imagine the personal guilt of that? Never mind the productivity of directly having one person out of work, but just the emotional toll that, that plays on you. It's on significant. Team. Yeah, on the whole team. Yeah. It's significant, isn't it? So uh, this is why... To me, mental health and well-being is a non-negotiable, just like physical health and safety. Yeah. Like like you were saying, Opie, companies before used to focus purely on physical ailments like musculoskeletal issues. I come from oil and gas, um, and we spent billions annually um, globally on protecting our employees from physical harm but we didn't spend a single second talking about mental harm.
1: No,
0: Not then. We didn't talk about how the work was arranged not to make me ill. We didn't talk about how employees can expect support from the company when it comes to mental ill health. We didn't train managers on how to either uh, identify that someone was struggling or how to, get them to access the support that was available. We didn't do any of that. And as a result, the company lost me and lost the decade and a half worth of experience that I brought. So yeah, I, it is to me something that any responsible organization must understand now that they have to make sure that their employees are feeling and doing their best, right? And that means physically and mentally. What we say, we call it that virtuous circle. When you feel better, you do better, right? So if we want better results, we've got to help employees to feel at their best so they can be creative, so they can support their teams more, so they can better communicate with each other and their leaders. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to to share
1: is what's missing? So, this is what I would want, um, and it's come up a few times with our HR um, clients and about well, what do we do exactly? And I think one of the key missing pieces is actually calculating it, piece of calculator, and how many people have been sick. Being able to calculate the cost of you not doing very much with your mental well being strategy or any of the mental health effort that you put in. What is the cost to the business? That part, there's not a lot. When I've asked that question in roundtables or, or meetings, yeah, there are not many HR leaders mm. or directors who've been saying, I know exactly how much that costs. We have the odd one or two who go here. Yeah, I've calculated it recently. Um, and it's a simple math. What I wanted to think about is calculating the number cost of sickness. So people who've gone off sick, calculating it based on the salary that they did earn. So I'd imagine the cost of sick of a director going off for six months is a hell of a lot more expensive than an admin in one of the departments going off sick. okay? So calculate that cost to be to the letter, right? Or to the, to the exact number. Um, the knock-on effect of the productivity. So how many were there? To, did they have to replace someone temporarily to cover, right? How much did that cost, right? Um, how long did it take to recruit when they didn't come back, right? So I want to think about that. I also want to think about how much time HR teams are waste dealing with issues of uh, sickness, recruitment, even just managerial issues, things that could have been handled by a line manager that got flagged up and escalated to HR that sh- shouldn't have been. So it'll be that is the action I'm going to ask you guys to take today, to think, can you calculate some of these things? If you can calculate them, then go and get them. If you haven't calculated them, then go and see if you have enough data to be able to calculate it for your organization. It's great when we tell you how many billions in, in you know the UK lost in productivity costs. It's a big number, but not, it not may not mean very much mm. to you in your in your organization where you actually work, right? So we need to be able to take out of all that billion, how much of it is your share? So you need to calculate it because that will let you know, ah, if this is what it's costing us. Then how do we solve a problem? You can't solve if you didn't get the gathered data in the first place because it just look like, oh, we want to do something really nice because we know we like people. We know you like people. That is great, but that's not the bottom line. That's not what your shareholders are after. <laughs> they want to make sure that your business is profitable, and to do that, you need your human capital to be working optimal. Right. Mm-hmm. So to do that, you not know how much you lose every month, every year when people are sick or not operating at their best and how you're going to mitigate that by finding solutions solution that would work to match the exact reason why the sickness happened in the first place. Mm. So that's the missing link to me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's analysis. And it's that that will tell you, well, if it costs us 500,000 every year in absenteeism and presenteeism, uh, then I can afford to spend 100,000, 200,000 to resolve this issue. Simple ROI. What have we discussed today?
1: What have we learned in today's session now? Just talking about it, what were the key points that I think the key point for me is that this, the current stat, how, what is the state of play for the NHS and how did it affect our business directly? Is one of the key things that I think I wanted to take away from today.
0: And also that mental health and well-being is now one of the biggest risks to an organization. It makes up for four out of the top five physical safety and well-being concerns for any organization. And also the cost that a
1: lot of organizations are not necessarily calculating the cost. And I think that is the task that I want more HR leaders to be more mindful of. So, we've got a toolkit, the Aurora um, 360 Wellbeing Toolkit, that might help you be able to work out how to do some of this stuff. So, I'm going to leave it, put it there in the show notes for you to be able to download. Um, and of course, if you have any questions about any of it at all, you know exactly where to find us.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues.
1: Follow us on LinkedIn. The link will be
0: in the show notes and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.